Hey guys, Jason here with Spectrum Labs. I have another podcast episode for the hemp startup journey, and this was a bit of a challenging one to have, but in the best way possible. So a uh, little background about this episode. A few days ago, I received an email. I saw it coming through in my inbox, and the title was, It's Time to Disband the DEA. And when I first saw it, I thought, wow, that's that's pretty pretty bold <laughs> to, to say that. I uh, thought it was kind of ludicrous, but I decided to read it, and it was pretty compelling. It was really interesting. It certainly made me question a few things. So I reached out to the author. We had a conversation over the phone, and we decided that it would be good to just continue that conversation at length and just put it out to the world so that you can so you can create your own opinions and be informed and then maybe start your own research into this. So the person, uh, the, my guest for this episode is Daniel Short. He's an attorney with Harris Bricken. They have uh, offices uh, up and down the West Coast. They specialize in legal services, mainly for cannabis and for hemp um, industries. So we talk about the DEA and just its origin and just you know how it started and why and just the, the role of the DEA in our country and in, in, in the world really at this point. And so this is supposed to be just a conversation starter. So you can take this information, you can start to do your own research, maybe you can have this conversation with your uh, partners at work or possibly uh, bring into your family and have these conversations about the, the role of the DEA, subsequently our role in the cannabis and the hemp community, and how we can help. Um, I guess the way that I like to think about it is just, you know, how can we be more human with each other? How can we help each other out in a better way? So, tough conversation. I was here more to, to listen and just to learn Daniel, and I hope that you can tune in, listen, please share it, and if you have any thoughts about what you thought, whether you thought it was a great argument, whether you thought it was ridiculous, maybe you have a different perspective on this topic and you have some better suggestions. So shoot me a message and let me know. And I hope that you get to enjoy this conversation and uh, let's see where it goes. So please enjoy this conversation with Daniel Short. Daniel Short, thank you so much for joining me on the Hemp Startup Journey. I've uh, been looking forward to speaking with you here since we were able to connect last week. So welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here and I'm, I'm really glad you reached out. Um, so I've been thinking about um, you know, our, our conversation for the past few days. And um, I guess to, to set a little bit of context, just in case folks are listening to this in the future, in, in you know, the far future, is that we're currently in uh, June of 2020 and that there are a lot of things going on in the world. Uh, the way that we connected is you recently wrote an article. Uh, it's called, uh, it's time to uh, disband the DEA. And uh, as soon as I saw it, and I think I, I subscribed to, to your newsletter, the Harris Brickett newsletter, and I saw the title and I had to just do a double take because uh, it's nothing that I've ever considered before, right? Like a really heady subject, uh, super interesting, uh, especially uh, very contextual because of what's happening with a lot of the racial conversations that we're having nowadays. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into all of that, but that just for a little bit of context, that's kind of how we connected. And then I guess 
to set a little bit more context, um, you know, I look forward to having, let, let's call it imperfect conversations, you know, during our, our you know, th this uh, episode, uh, because I feel like we shouldn't have space to, to put our thoughts out there and let them not be perfect. You know, like that's a way that some of us kind of um, understand the world, like certainly myself, uh, you know, how we understand mm -hmm. ourselves and just kind of putting some thoughts out there, speaking with uh, smart fo folks like yourself now uh, that are bringing really interesting insights. So I hope that when folks are listening, they're not thinking like, oh, well, this is a, a refined point of view. Like th these are thoughts and, you know, putting, uh, challenging people to think about these really important topics, like what we'll talk about today with the DEA. So um, is there anything else that you want to set, kind of set the tone about this, um, about this conversation that we're going to have? Well, I, yeah, so I think, I, I wrote the piece for, for our Canada Law blog, um, which, you know, we normally cover, we cover a lot of topics and we, we certainly have, have written about the DEA before. There's actually a, a, an article by a colleague of mine from 2015 mm -hmm. um, that's kind of similar to mine. It's, it's about, you know, getting rid of the DEA or ending the DEA. So it's something that we touched on before. Um, but one of the, the main drivers in, in writing it was a reaction to the movement across the country to defund police. Mm -hmm. And that's really been focused on local law enforcement. So one of the, the reasons I, I chose to kind of go for this, this topic was because I wanted to make sure that we're applying the same level of scrutiny to federal agencies as well, because they're not as, it's not necessarily as easy to protest outside of, you know, a, a DEA headquarters, especially because the DEA is a much larger organization. It's spread out throughout the country. Um, so I, you know, that was just a, giving context, that was another driving force behind my, my decision to, to write this, this Good. article. Good, thank you. So then uh, to uh, finalize the context uh, before we start getting into this conversation, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do? Uh, the other question I would like to ask after that is uh, how and I guess why you decided to get into cannabis. That's always an interesting story from a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah, no, happy to happy to, to weigh in on that. So I am an attorney with Harris Bricken, um, which is a law firm that is, we have offices all along the West Coast in LA, Portland, Seattle, and then we also have, we, we do a lot of business in, in China as well. Um, I work in our cannabis practice, so my practice is focused mainly on uh, it's, it's about 60, 40, I'd say, uh, hemp and, and marijuana. Um, so, you know, both forms of cannabis with different, as you know, you know, on this, this podcast with very different, um, legal, uh, implications. Mm -hmm. So I, my, my work is mainly focused on, you know, kind of corporate law, regulatory matters. Um, I work with a lot of companies on you know dealing with the, the various state regulations on CBD um, things like that so you know I'm not I'm, I'm definitely not 
focused on criminal uh, criminal law. So I, I don't mm -hmm. do criminal defense or anything like that. Um, but you know, being part of this industry, I've I've just learned a, a lot about the the DEA and the way that the agency works and the impact that it's had. And you know, when I got into so I. I started out in this field um, really based on kind of failures in law school. I, I don't know how else to put it, but I was I, I was in my my first year, my one year of law school, and I wanted to be a I knew I wanted to do business uh, law. I wanted to do you know corporate law. And from what I could tell early on, the only way to do that would be to go and end up at one of the big white shoe law firms. Mm -hmm. um, so I had, you know, no interest in going into cannabis law when I, when I got to law school. But then I, at the end of my first year, I got my grades for the last quarterback and they weren't very good. And then I was trying to get onto the University of Washington Law Review and Law Review for, you know, the, the people who didn't go to law school is just a really prestigious publication. Each law school has a, a law review and they put out law review articles, um, which are then, you know, sometimes cited in judicial opinions. It's, you kind of become part of this legal scholarship. And I really wanted to, to do that um, because to get a job at one of these big law firms, you need really good grades and you need to have all the credentials. So I didn't get either, you know, I didn't have the grades that I wanted and I didn't have the, the, I wasn't on law review. I didn't have, I, I kind of realized I, I don't think I'm going to be able to, to make it in corporate law. And so this was in 2014 and I did a summer internship in, in Oregon. And Oregon was considering measure 91, which is what legalized uh, recreational marijuana in that state. So I was kind of going through this like existential crisis of, you know, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to do. And, um, and then I saw that there was such a push for this new industry in Washington had legalized marijuana two years before. And I just kind of thought, okay, well, you know, this is going to be an area where everyone has a, everyone's going to need a lawyer and it's not going to matter that I'm young. It's not going to matter that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't qualify for the, these top tier white shoe law firm jobs. Um, because it's it's also new so then i got really interested in it and i started learning about it and i started networking and and you know reaching out to the community and and this was you know and then as i i learned more about sort of the war on drugs all the injustice that had gone on for years which i was you know i was aware of but i just that's when i started to kind of understand the extent of it and that was important too because I, I felt like this industry it it coincided with my my value system and my beliefs. So I felt like it was something that I could I would feel better about you know working in this space and trying to be an advocate for the industry as well as you know providing advice to my my clients. I, I just thought that that would be more fulfilling than say taking a you know just a, a more traditional corporate law um, job or approach. So the, the more I learned, the more I became interested in it. And so, you know, then when I, I got out of law school, I, I well, I interned with, with Harris Brick and, um, 
in law school and then you know just never gave them back the keys just kept mm -hmm. coming and so they they kept me around um but yeah that's that's sort of how i got into the the industry okay awesome thank you for that um so well let, let's start talking about um your article and then uh, before getting into it maybe because i'm going to be learning from you right like I, I don't have uh that much to to contribute being that this was just a, a very recent topic for me you seem to um ha have a good understanding of of what um i guess what what this is um and, and what you're proposing but before we get into that can you talk a little bit about what what is the DEA? Like, what is its? Uh, what was the original purpose? Uh, when we were talking last week, you mentioned um, some things about uh, the the Nixon administration and just his original um, idea of fighting drugs, and then just maybe kind of got a little bit convoluted. Um, so, you know, preceding that, like, you know, what is the DEA? What what are they supposed to be doing? Yeah. So the the DEA is essentially in charge of both controlling drugs themselves and um, then enforcing drug laws. So the I think the conversation, it makes the most sense to start with the Controlled Substance Act, okay. which is the, it's essentially the, the federal drug laws. And the Controlled Substances, the Controlled Substances Act takes various substances and places them in different schedules based on their essentially their their danger to society that's that's how the system works and so you have schedule one um which is you know where where marijuana is scheduled and it's where heroin is scheduled those are the most dangerous drugs in the the government's eyes they're so dangerous that they're they, they can't even be studied um, even with medical supervision. And then Schedule II drugs are still dangerous, they're still controlled, but there are, are some medical applications. So, you know, for example, cocaine is, is a Schedule II and, and marijuana is Schedule I. Now, obviously, and, and uh, you know, the, the 2018 Farm Bill removed hemp from the definition of marijuana, so hemp is not a controlled substance the way that, that marijuana is and controlled substance has to do with the, the CSA, um, the, the federal drug law. So that legislation was passed in 1970 when uh, Nixon was president. And the, the, the laws, the, the law itself is sort of neutral on its face, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't, explicitly penalize people based on their ethnicity or based on their background. But a lot of the reasoning and a lot of the logic that went into the Controlled Substances Act, uh, especially when it comes to marijuana, was based on, you know, racially charged testimony and just, I, I mean, straight, pure and simple racism from the, you know, 1930s and 1940s. So, in 1970, when, when Congress was considering this legislation with regards to marijuana, they sort of adopted the same reasoning or they didn't reopen discussion on a, on a lot of these issues um, and, and simply relied on, you know, the, the legislation from the, the 1930, 1930s marijuana um, tax stamp act, which was 
you know, and you can go back and look at the congressional records. I mean, some of the reasons why marijuana was outlawed was because, you know, lawmakers believed that if you smoked marijuana, white women were more likely to have sex with black men or so the whole reefer know, madness thing, right? <laughs> the whole reefer madness thing, right? So this is, it's fundamental to our, our drug laws and drug policy. And it's really important that the, those reasons to outlaw marijuana, the reefer madness, I mean, the name itself, marijuana, I, I don't like using it. I, I only use it be, to distinguish, you know, cannabis mm -hmm. um, between hemp and, and marijuana. But the term itself was chosen because it would associate cannabis with immigrants and with Mexicans. And at the time, just like we see today, you know, history repeats itself. There was a lot of fear mongering. And so when the you know, US government, and this is kind of getting a little bit off topic, but um, Henry Anslinger, who was the, the you know, original drug czar and, and really had this crusade against marijuana, what, what happened there is that prohibition ended. And you know, these, these government agencies they, and these government agents, they needed something to, to do. They needed something to protect their jobs. And so that's a big reason why you know, marijuana was criminalized. Um, was so that there could be something to enforce and, and something to go after and something to fight. And in order to convince the white lawmakers and, and you know, the, the white public at large that this was an actual societal harm, there was this campaign to associate marijuana and other drug use with minorities and, and you know, these, these various ethnicities. You, you see in the reefer madness, you see you know, there's marijuana that is kind of equated to opium, and, and you see these horrible, outdated images of, you know, Asian people providing marijuana to, again, white women, and you see, you know, all these, these, just all this propaganda. So that's the background that goes into the CSA. And then you have, so now if we, we jump back to 1970, you have, you know, Richard Nixon, who he, he recorded, I think, roughly like 6,000 hours of his phone conversations. And so I, I can tell you, he was a racist man. I mean, there's, there's countless examples. It does not, you know, this is it's not hard to find. There's a, a program called the Miller Project, which has taken a lot of the declassified information and put it together and made it available. There's, uh, you know, been New York Times pieces, Washington Post pieces. There's, he, he was very anti-Semitic. He was racist and his uh, policy advisor, uh, I think this was last year anyway, this, this um, news leaked about how in 1994, his advisor has said the reason that there was a war on drugs was because Nixon knew that he couldn't, you know, he, he couldn't explicitly go after black people and he couldn't explicitly go after sort of the, the left wing hippies, but he knew that, you know, those, those groups in his mind were more likely to use drugs. So by criminalizing drugs, he could go at, legally go after these different individuals. And so, you know, th that's where you're coming from. And, and so I think that Nixon's 
sort of racism um, definitely influenced drug policy and it, it influenced the, the push for the Controlled Substances Act. But I also think that that's kind of an oversimplification because Nixon also did hate drugs and he did see them as a societal harm. And in the 1970s, you have the Vietnam War and you have soldiers coming back who are you know, suffering from PTSD and had drugs widely available in Vietnam. And then they returned to the U.S. and that really brought the the drug problem to light. You know, the the number of, of heroin addicts, um, the the increase sort of in, in heroin addiction during the Vietnam War era, I think, has a lot to do with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act. So, so Nixon was, you know, both a racist but also a, you know, he he saw the social harms that come with drugs um, and, and drug use at a, you know, wide scale, kind of the, the epidemic that could come from it. So in the first few years of the Controlled Substances Act, Nixon's policy was focused on stopping the supply or stopping the demand for drugs, not the supply. So, and that's key to, to all of this because in the years since the focus has shifted to stopping the supply. And that's what we see as the DEA's main focus today and the US drug policies sort of footing is on, is on stopping the supply of drugs. It's, it's going to the border, it's preventing um, drugs from coming in from South America. It's shutting down distribution networks in the United States. Capturing submarines now global. apparently. Submarines. Like, yeah, apparently that's, that's a thing now, like DEA capturing submarines coming across. Uh, different bodies yeah. of water full of drugs, exactly. which is mind-boggling. Exactly. So that's that's what we have now. But supply side, or sorry, stopping the demand side is more focused on education and rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So think, you know, I mean, this is, it's it's not easy, but think of D.A.R.E., right? The the yep. after-school specials, the just say no. Those Those are more focused on education, getting, you know, involved early, talking to kids and in, even as early as elementary school, I remember we had a D.A.R.E. program um, when I was in, I, I think, fifth grade, right? And so that's a piece of it as well. Um, but anyway, early on, that's what Nixon wanted to focus on, or at least wanted a 50-50 split where you have this, so, so you have the enforcement side, you know, there, there are stiff penalties if you're caught distributing drugs or using drugs, but in terms of the the initial budget, um, there was you know it was it was it was even. There was as much money going into the supply side, so going into you know rehabilitation and education. Um, but then, as the Nixon president presidency went on, and then really in every subsequent um, every subsequent administration the focus has shifted drastically towards stopping the supply and the the funding and the programs focused on stopping the demand have really stagnated so that's what we see today that's you know there's there's this massive focus on enforcement with not nearly as much effort in rehabilitation and education um but you know the other so so 
kind of returning to your question about what is the DEA, um, it, it also does regulate drugs. And so in the context of marijuana, this comes up a lot because the DEA has consistently refused to reschedule marijuana because, you know, it doesn't, I mean, it, it, it's, it shouldn't be schedule one. It's just not as dangerous as, as heroin. And this was, there was a, a commission that found this in 1970 that Nixon decided not to kind of enter into the congressional record because it was so apparent that, you know, marijuana, it's not physically addictive the same way that alcohol or heroin or cocaine, um, the same way that they are. It's, you know, it, it, you don't overdose from it. It doesn't cause deaths. I mean, and I'm not saying that, I think this is important too. It, it is a drug. It's, it's not without, you know, some social harm, but it's, just comparatively, it, it makes really no sense to have it associated or scheduled alongside of, of heroin and methamphetamine. Um, so, but anyway, so, you know, you've really what, what we're talking about now with the issue is now, I think, with the DEA, it does have to do with this, not only their inability to control drugs and soft drugs, but also the, the, the total failure of trying to cut off the supply of drugs in the United States or trying to use, you know, punitive measures to prevent people from entering the drug trade or using drugs. Um, that's, I, I think, one of the, the big issues that's got us to where we are today. Um, so in the, I highlighted a couple of things that you mentioned in the article. And again, folks are interested, they can go to the Harrisburg website and read it. Uh, it's yeah, Canada Law Blog. The Canada Law Blog. And it's, uh, it's titled, It's Time to Disband the DEA. And I'll link to it in the show notes. But one of the things that you mentioned uh, when you start introducing uh, when the DEA was created was um, sort of the, the bias um, or excuse me, uh, just some statistics about uh, activities by the DEA. So you mentioned um, in 1973, 1.1 out of 100,000 deaths in the U.S. were attributed to unintentional drug overdoses. And in 2018, the CDC reported that 19.1 out of 100,000 were attributed to unintentional overdoses. And you continue making a point about, well, just the DEA has been ineffectual. Um, you know, as, as a reason to, I guess, as an argument for saying that we should cancel it. So can you start talking about some of those things that, that the purpose of the DEA was to you know, curtail drug use, keep people safe, but that even with, within those parameters, not even necessarily talking about the, the race part of it, but just even within those parameters that they're not being effective. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the DEA is a failure. It's a failure. And one of the easiest ways that I think, one of, one of the most obvious uh, failures is that statistic that drugs are so much more dangerous now. And I understand that fighting drug use is a complicated issue and that it's, you know, finding metrics for success in that fight can be challenging, but remember this agency is enforcing drug laws and also controlling drugs. So the DEA is also part of the opioid epidemic. And you've seen the DEA take a very, very tough stance against 
street drugs, right? So you see, you know, mandatory minimums um, put in place, and you know the the DEA works with with the Department of Justice and, and prosecutes these crimes sort of to the fullest extent of the law. And you know you see, you're, and this this gets to the this the systemic issues, right? You see the the difference in sentencing guidelines for things like crack cocaine versus crack versus cocaine. Um, so you know the DEA's MO has been tough enforcement, lock people up. You know if if new people come and and take the place of someone that you locked up, you lock them up too. So you you see that they've taken this. It's at least when it comes to street drugs, at least it's consistent. But then you look at something like the opioid crisis, which has a lot to do with that statistic, right? That you're, you know, the, the 19 out of 100,000 people die from an unintentional overdose. That, that has a lot to do with the opioid crisis. Well, there was, I think it was on 60 Minutes just this last weekend, um, there, the DEA has not even gone after these pharmaceutical companies with nearly the vigor that they've gone after street drugs. So, and, and that's happened for years. I mean, you'll see, you know, some of these companies, they've, they've killed thousands and thousands of people. And very rarely does anyone actually go to prison. So, you know, this, this agency, not only has it taken this wrong approach to fighting street drugs, again, I, I use that term sort of loosely, but when it comes to this more white collar pharmaceutical company crime, the DEA backs down and it becomes intimidated and it'll settle these cases where you have, you know, companies making billions of dollars, leaving a trail of bodies. And then the DEA will settle for, you know, a hundred million, which is chunk change to these pharmaceutical companies. So it's, the, the failure is not just in the, the systemic racism that the DEA has, you know, expanded across the country. It's also just that they're really, really, really bad at protecting Americans from drug harms on the enforcement and control side. And their budget is insane, right? I mean, uh, I believe it's, it's over $2 billions. Billion. What is it, $2 billion? Yeah. I believe so. I believe it was uh, slightly over two billion for 2019. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So um, then, the other thing that you mentioned that um, th that I highlighted was um, let's see if I can find it. But you were talking about um, oh, so like here's one um, about criminal activities. I think this was a case in uh, New York. Uh, so the Washington Post reported in 2019 that not one of the 179 defendants arrested in the DEA reverse thing cases in Southern District of New York were white and all but two were black and Latino. Um, and I think somewhere in the article, you mentioned something else about the majority of people uh, being white in, in a certain case, but that the folks that were arrested, most of them were black and brown folks. And so that, that that's where you start talking about the whole racial bias uh, within the DEA. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So the, again, just to recap, we have these 
drug laws which are neutral on their face, right? So it's, it's, there's nothing that you're going to find in the Controlled Substances Act that says that, you know, if you commit this crime and you're black, you're going to be sentenced to a longer prison sentence. Or you, you have a, you'll have a longer prison sentence, right? There's obviously, I mean, that would be unconstitutional, but it might as well say that because that's exactly how it's played out. And this idea about the war on drugs being an actual war on drugs is BS. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but it's total BS. Um, because if it were really about drugs, then I have to imagine the DEA would have been kicked around or disbanded already or, you know, reconfigured because the drug problem has just gotten worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I mean, if the IRS was, you know, was collecting taxes the way that the the DEA was fighting drugs, the, the US government would have no money, right? I mean, if they were doing, if, if there was the equivalent where, you know, it was essentially, they, they were doing a 20, 20 times worse a job than they were in the 1970s, mm-hmm. the IRS would either no longer exist or would be completely different than what we know today. So it's not about that. The numbers that have gone up are incarceration statistics. So not only do we, incarcerate more people you know per capita than we did when the DEA was formed in 1973 but the these not only in those individual cases that you mentioned you know I talked about the New York case and then there was another one in San Francisco but if you look at a broader scale it's the the number of of you know black and and latino people in prison so far outweighs the the relative population side so you have to look and say why is this happening why are there these so-called neutral laws that are having these incredibly racially disparate effects and i think a lot of it has to do with the idea of implicit bias and you know i also talked in my piece about the dea's task force program so in the 1980s, the DEA came up with this drug courier profile, and it was to be used in, uh, in ports of entry, airports, trains, to try and, and detect people smuggling drugs. And those, again, those the, the sort of guidance was neutral on its face, but the images used were, you know, black and, and Latino men. You mean um, in, like in the training materials? Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in the training materials. And I quoted uh, uh, another article um, in, in my piece about this. But so you have this, it, and that led to this implicit bias, which again has been well documented over time. And, you know, I use those two examples where courts took issue with the DEA. Those are just two small examples. But basically, you, you take this, this, you know, racial profiling. And then you, you marry the DEA to all these law enforcement agencies around the country and internationally too. Um, and then you have, so now you have the DEA going to police departments, which, and I'm not saying that these police departments were, you know, quote unquote woke. I'm not saying that they were not already 
dealing with this implicit bias and this racial profiling, but you have the DEA and all the government money that comes with the DEA traveling around the country, training police departments to look for drugs, expanding its mission to no longer just focus on the high-level drug dealers, the distribution networks, the importation, um, but also focusing on basically every link in the chain. So the DEA in partnering with law enforcement started going after low-level drug offenders, drug dealers. And that's a big part of this mass incarceration. And then you have police that are already focused on minority communities because again, the, the systemic, the, the, you know, the, the systemic racism plays in, into every piece of this because you have these, you know, communities that don't have nearly as much economic activity. These are communities that have not been nurtured or invested in by the U.S. government and are monitored heavily. And the DEA expanded its jurisdiction um, and expanded sort of its power by making sure that drug offenses were being prosecuted and also associating drugs with various minority communities. And so when I say it, it's, you know, it's like America didn't need to be taught racism, but that's exactly what the DEA did. It, it went around and it, you know, in using this war on drugs, it was able to infiltrate multiple levels of society and then take money and essentially provide it to, you know, the law enforcement across the country so long as these police departments were prioritizing drug crimes. And what does that result in? That results in more arrests, that results in, you know, more criminal activity. It, it leads to things like loitering laws. And you take all these other pieces of our, our criminal justice system and you focus them on drugs, but in reality, you're just focusing them on keeping these communities down because you know, that this is the systemic issue. It's these laws that are neutral on their face, but that were passed for racist reasons and then are enforced with racial profiling. And you, you tie the funding to these different police departments and, and the DEA itself, which again, you know, $2 billion. The metric has become how many people are arrested, how many people are, are brought in jail, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the drug problem in the United States is getting better. It's so much to try to wrap my mind around. I mean, it's, it's uh, I know that one that your main argument here is, you know, this being the DEA, but there's so many different layers uh, here. Cause you know, we're talking about um, certain organizations in, in the culture and just the, the reasons that, that they were started like the DEA was someone that had these racist bias. I mean, uh, like I think some of the propaganda that I saw from back in those days um, where that um, I forget exactly the verbiage, but it said something along the lines of if you're like if your wife smokes marijuana, she'll want to sleep with a black man or 
something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, from, from like from government organizations putting out this information, which is nowadays insane. Um, but I, I would imagine that back then it was probably like, oh, okay, sure. Like the majority of people that were receiving that information were just like, oh, okay, like we'll trust the government. That's we'll we'll try to well, abide by the these rules. Papers, and and that's the thing. It's not. I mean. The DEA is, and, and just the, the drug war, if we go broader, it really is the perfect example. I don't want to say perfect, that's the wrong word. It's textbook. It's a textbook example of, of structural racism because it, it it's, it's not any one entity. It's not based on the racism of any one individual but the system is built to continue to oppress and it's hard to know how to stop that because it, it's it just perpetuates itself the system of oppression continues to oppress and it it's so impossible it's, it's so challenging to make change that's why the the title and, and kind of the main point is to span the dea it's not going to fix everything. It's it's not going to give people back the their lives they've lost, the time that they've lost. But it I means so many of the issues that we're seeing, I think, are related to the DEA, the militarization of the police, the mass incarceration. So much of this has to do with drugs, but it never really has been about drugs. It's always been about oppression and it's always been about especially you know i i, I want to be clear about this too because the, the moment that we're we're living in it's the dea can never exist with this idea of black lives matter because in its entire history the dea has has never done really anything to indicate that as a system it does believe black lives matter because the DEA is ruining black lives in America. It's ending black lives in America. And it's not just the DEA. I mean, if you, you know, this all started with the, the memo in light of the George Floyd protests. And so to recap that the DEA received authorization from the Department of Justice um, to essentially expand its jurisdiction to any crimes related to the George Floyd protests. And so now the DEA doesn't even need drugs, right? It doesn't even matter if, if a drug, if, if criminal activity is related to a drug crime, the DEA is using, and this is despicable to me. This is, it's just, I, I can't even, it's hard for me to even talk about it. not, it, just because it makes me so angry, but they've used this innocent man's death to now, and, and the protest against the racist police policies that killed George Floyd, that, the, that were implemented in large part by the DEA. And George Floyd, you know, he was, he was killed because he used, allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill. It doesn't even have anything to do with drugs, but it's, it's that internal systemic racism that the DEA has promoted 
that people are violently protesting and reacting to. And now the DEA is using that as a justification to continue to go after and continue to arrest Americans. And it's, it's just despicable. It's, it's, it's evil. And the DEA deserves to be, does not deserve to continue to exist for a litany of reasons. But that alone to me is enough. Just the, the absolute disrespect to George Floyd and to the First Amendment and, you know, these fundamental American values. Um, that, that was a, uh, obviously kind of a, a big reason that I wrote this as well. But I, you know, and it's, it's also, it's like, they're so bad at their job too, that they, of course they need to expand this jurisdiction mm -hmm. because states are, are now pushing to reform or abolish to fund police departments. And I think that scares the DEA because if that happens at the local level, it could very well happen at the federal level. And I think the DEA should be scared because I do believe that we are in a moment where people are just no longer tolerating it. And it's, it's a shame that it's taken this long, but it, we can't let the, it, you know, we as a society can't let the DEA continue to do what it, it's done. I mean, I don't think that we can survive with the, the drug epidemic and the lack of treatment, the lack of rehabilitation, in addition to the added violence and danger of just the criminalization of drugs. And that $2 billion, there's got to be a better way for us to spend it. I don't know the exact way to do it. I can't come up here and say that I have all the answers, but it's it's too high of a risk to continue on the path that we've been on. And the DEA, even in light of George Floyd and the protests, it's not going to change. It's going to use opportunities like this to expand its jurisdiction, just like it's done. It's going to continue. The, the DEA needs crime. It needs criminal conduct. And it's very good at creating that criminal conduct and then locking up the essentially the, the labor force, the, the drug dealers who can, you know, those can be competitive positions, honestly. So people will keep coming. The human capital will not run out and the DEA will keep killing and locking up and, and both directly and indirectly, they'll continue to oppose this idea of, of Black Lives Matter yeah. as long as they exist. You know, having, uh, I guess, uh, just a lot of challenges listening to a lot of what you're saying. Um, and I think, I think we're all being challenged by just the, the world as we know it nowadays. So, you know, just like trying to put everything into perspective about what you're saying. And, you know, so for example, like my, my mom raised my, uh, me and, and my brother and sister to just like, you know, abide by the rules, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. police officers, like if they say, do this, you do that. If, you know, like don't do drugs, like, just, you know, she, she raised us to just go by the book. And part of that is to listen to what your government tells you to do, right? Like it's it just sort of ingrained in me and probably a, a, many of us to, to follow the laws. And, you know, when you stop at a stoplight, most people stop, right? You don't have a bunch of people just mm -hmm. like uh, pretending like they're in Mad Max and <laughs> shooting up everybody and, you know, going around. Um, so I think, 
most people are inherently good. I guess what I'm getting at is that somebody going into the DA, like I'm just trying to humanize this, right? Like just trying to understand because yeah. there's just a lot of confusion in my mind and just a lot of, I don't know, just it's just kind of, I feel like I'm upside down sometimes with all this, yeah, all this stuff. And I, I can't imagine that somebody is, an individual is going to go to the DEA and say like, I'm going to go into the DEA because I'm a racist, right? Like I don't, I don't see that yeah. individual racist person going in there to say, I'm going to arrest a bunch of black and brown people. Um, but I guess what you're saying is that it's more systemic. Like it, it started, you know, for, for those reasons. And then maybe the, the culture is built that way. Like nobody's saying like, Hey, let's go arrest a bunch of black people. Um, but that, you know, those um, like, you know, images of, of black and brown folks and, and propaganda and all those kinds of things are there. Like, is I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Like, why, I guess, why does that still persist in an organization like that? Yeah, I don't know if you have an answer. I'm just trying to think of like, how could somebody go into with probably good intentions where like, yeah, hey, I'm going to go do my job and help my country get rid of drugs. And then all of a sudden, you know, that they might be part of that problem of continuing to the um one of the the folks that you but before i let you answer one of the folks that you linked in your article uh, rebecca del sol um from the criminal justice matters that uh, i guess she had something in her article that um apparently uh white caucasian folks and uh, people of color use drugs in roughly the same amount but then you have the incarceration and the rest of black and brown people that are overwhelmingly, um, you know, so much higher, mm -hmm. right? So just trying to think, I don't know, like trying to wrap my mind around, like how does that continue to happen? And, you know, does nobody in that department or organization say like, hey, like, are, are we actually doing the right thing? Or we're just continue, gonna continue the same practices we've been doing for the last 50 years? Well, and I think this, it is, and I think it should be humanized because this is not something, the system is designed to get a result, right? And it doesn't matter so much as to who's doing it because, again, this goes beyond, you know, this has, has the DEA has kind of expanded this enforcement under both Republican and Democratic presidents. You know, it's it's not that any of these one individuals is really forcing this to happen. It's not as if this is a even uh, that that people are doing this consciously. It's the way the system is designed, and it's circular. So, you know, if you have a let's say somebody. You, you have these DEA agents who learn about this drug courier profile. I mean, let's, let's be honest. It's not as if the DEA is this monolithic white agency. I mean, it's, it, it is not, I mean, there are people who have various backgrounds there, are, you know, the DEA is not solely employing, you know, racist white law enforcement officers. But it's the it's the full system, so it doesn't take that conscious racism to you know end up with these these prison populations that are are so out of 
line with the general population that you know it doesn't take intentional overt racist acts to end up with these results it builds up over time and it has a lot to do with just the 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 other systemic issues right like think about the the drug trade i mean what draws people to be drug dealers it's the promise of profit and the lack of other opportunities so one way to fight the you know if, if we try to step back and this is just the, the hypothetical but imagine if instead of locking people up the dea decided to fight drugs by going after that economic opportunities right because you have in this country you know poverty is a racial issue because the way this country has been built and developed it has you know allowed the the white majority to retain access to capital and so you know it's it, again because these statistics they they permeate through society so you know if you're you may have more access to loans for college if you're white you may have better connections from your family because years and years you know these networks have built you you can get help buying a house you can move into communities that are you know suburban where you don't have these these same issues that you have in places like Seattle and and Minneapolis with you know these these violent oppressive polices the, the police systems you have you know white migration um you have people leaving white people leaving communities and taking their money with them and so again going back to it if you focused instead of locking up drug dealers instead on providing other opportunities and alternatives to the drug trade that would be another way to fight the war on drugs but so it's not racist to necessarily say that instead of trying to provide new opportunities we're going to you know use the instead of using the carrot we're going to use the stick and try to lock people up for using drugs if if we lived in a world that you know where slavery had never existed or where there weren't the we didn't have the history that we have and there was truly an even and equitable playing field then maybe that wouldn't have this racially disparate effect but because all those other factors are playing into it when you focus on locking people up it's going to have a, a disparate impact that is then going to continue to plague the following generation and it's not going to encumber the essentially the the you know the, the white communities although obviously the the opioid epidemic has impacted you know it, it does not it, it's not restricted to any um ethnic group or, or any sort of specific community but you know you you take that idea and then so you have like a DEA agent who may not be racist or who may not you know harbor these feelings but the system they're they're a cog in the machine and the system is going to continue to you know take in human capital continue to lock people up continue to supply this 
industrial prison complex that we have in this country. And if you just if you just focus on individuals and you focus on, you know, the the conscious ideas that they have, it's not going to change because the system will continue to operate. You have to dismantle the system in order to have a you know more equitable equitable policing and drug policies in the United States. And then, so towards the end of your article, you talk about um, where those pieces would go, right, from the DEA if they are disbanded. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about that? Well, you know, and this is, I mean, I think that there, I, I'm certainly not the most qualified person at all to, to talk about sort of how we should police drugs in the United States. But to me, I, I just feel like this, shutting down the supply isn't going to happen. And if we're able to put more money into treatment, especially, and I'm not just talking about drug treatment, but treatment for a lot of the underlying issues that are related to drug use, the depression, anxiety, traumatic PTSD, you know, these, all these underlying issues that, you know, two billion dollars may be able to actually impact I, I i think that that's the starting point and then you also have to talk about legalization i mean if you take away the criminal element then you remove a you wouldn't have the same incarceration problem you wouldn't have the same violence the militarization of police i mean drug crimes account for such a, a large percentage of criminal activity anyway. But, you know, going back to the the pharmaceutical examples, we already have a system where in some cases the DEA is willing to settle and is willing to let people go on with their lives, pay fines and penalties and things like that. Now, obviously there are some violent drug activities that you know you you can't take the same approach and it's I, i'm not i don't want to just completely equate this pharmaceutical issue to you know fighting cartels which are i mean cartels are, are incredibly violent sophisticated ruthless organizations but if you were to legalize drugs then you don't necessarily have to deal with the same cartels who have you know, as the DEA has ramped up and become more militarized and more powerful, the cartels have done exactly the same and they're more adaptable, right? So the DEA is never going to be able to outmaneuver them. It's a bureaucratic agency and, you know, the cartels, they, they move much faster. They don't have to go through the same committee meetings and, and you know, they're not employing sort of you know, nine to five workers. Um, So by legalizing drugs too, and then focusing also on the efforts to, you know, provide rehabilitation and education, um, I have to imagine that's a better system. But it's also, we're at a point, and I think we're seeing this a lot, you know, in Seattle, in Seattle, I'll speak where I'm from, where the reaction to the police uh, to the protests, the violent police reactions has, has really been telling, I think, and it's showed that this the conversation shouldn't just be about reform because reform should have happened 
you know, decades ago. At the very least, reform should have started in earnest when Colin Kaepernick started kneeling and made this a, a an issue at, you know, uh, dinner tables across the, the country. Um, but it didn't. And now when we look at the cost and benefit of continuing in this police state, I think a lot of people are realizing that, you know, even if we don't have it fully figured out, there's a high cost of continuing on the path that we're on. And so, you know, I do encourage people to research and learn and, and you know, educate themselves on, on issues of, you know, defunding the police, but also the, the DEA um, so that we have, you know, an informed voting population that can then reach out to lawmakers and push for these policy changes and continue to protest and um, continue to fight for change um, because I don't, it's not sustainable. We, we can't, we, we shouldn't have been living under this oppressive, you know, DEA police state for as long as we have, but it's, and it's, it's ruined and ended so many lives, but just as a, a society, I don't think, even if we don't have every piece in place moving forward, we just can't continue to operate this way. Yeah, yeah I think uh, you know, understanding you know, those issues and, and understanding the history is really important, like you, you mentioned. Uh, there's a great book that I read last year. Uh, I think the title was just Marijuana, and it's uh, John Hudak. Uh, who's a oh, yeah. uh, strategist. I forget the company that he's a consultant he's for. He's with the Brookings Institute. The Brookings Institute. Uh, great book. And so he goes back to day zero with just, you know, the war on drugs and PA, uh, the Nixon administration, all the way through current times. And uh, his perspective is just, you know, if you want to um, legalize marijuana in the United States, like, you know, understand where this whole, you know, sort of culture and system came from. And then, you know, here's where we are today. And uh, here's some suggestions on how to uh, talk to politicians, talk to community members, and, you know, how, how to make this possible. But I think just in the context of what we were talking about with just the DEA and the war on drugs, um, I think that's a really good reference for understanding uh, what, what it is to this day. Um, yeah, um, I'd like to also, since you mentioned that, um, mention the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is an amazing book. Yeah. I mean, it it touches on everything, kind of a lot of the things that we've talked about, but in a way that I could never, you know, convey. I mean, it's it's really, really an excellent and heartbreaking look at how we got here. Okay. 10 years ago, but obviously things have not really improved in that time. Um, so, and then also I strongly, strongly urge people to look up and, and sort of learn more about the uh, Drug Policy Alliance, which I um, cited in my article. And they just do such amazing work and you know it's a nonprofit organization people can get involved and donate um i just i really think that you know i mean i'm i'm glad that i had the opportunity to to come here and talk and i'm really glad that you reached out i'm glad that you read my article um but you know i i want to 
kind of point to the the people who have really been doing this work and are, are really informed on this and you know they're in my mind kind of the, the cutting edge of this so i encourage listeners to check that out as well and um you know hopefully get involved or if you feel compelled the the dea really is a, i think hurting this country in in ways that i'm still just trying to grasp i mean this is kind of like a a black hole and once you start looking into the issue we haven't even talked about you know the, the scandals that have yeah. like the dea we haven't talked about their own racial issues within the company itself in terms of hiring and you know as a workplace there's so much more there's so much more there and if you you know it's it's just hard to find things to benefits things that they've done well so, yeah, so I, I'll, I'll put thank you for those uh, i'll put links in the uh, the show notes about the the couple of books that you mentioned in the drug policy alliance um so because i think it's it'll be good for folks to kind of read up i think once you start like you mentioned like once you start going down this road you just keep finding out and discovering and learning and understanding and uh, like i mentioned earlier i think certainly myself I, I've, I've been feels like every day i'm challenged by some notion of something that has existed or organization that has existed in our country forever and you know somebody said like oh well it shouldn't be like this it should be like this and i'm like wait what it's just feels like my my lid is being blown off every day yeah no i know i think that it's yeah, it's. A, I like the example that you used about your mom, you know, telling you to listen to police and things like that. Um, it really is embedded in us, right? We really do have this idea that you should trust authority and that, you know, police are here to serve and protect and that, you know, the, the DEA is, is fighting drugs and they have a, a valid mission because drugs are dangerous, no question. But when you start kind of looking into it, the, the, it just doesn't add up. And those ideals are not consistent with the agencies and, and you know, these, the authority them, it, themselves. It's just, it, it is challenging and it's hard to shift your paradigm, but I, I think we all just need to keep looking at that and, you know, and make sure that we're that our actions and our beliefs are consistent with our values as as people and that's that's my biggest issue with the DEA is I just think that they've done so much harm that I I didn't know what to do in, in, in you know with, with the the coronavirus and protests and so I just thought well at least I can try to explain how poorly the DEA has handled drugs in America <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I mentioned the other day, I, I felt like myself, like I had to figure out my place in the world just you know, for the past three months. It seems like we've all been sort of displaced in one way or another. And you know, certainly in the past three weeks or so, then it's another sort of chasm of decay. And you're like, what, like, not necessarily pick a side, but just like, what do you, what do you stand for? What are your beliefs? Um, and just unearthing all these different feelings about um, just our, our world right now and then and being in the cannabis industry this is a, a really important subject for us to consider and you know not, not trying to sell anybody on it but i think it's really important for us to at least um 
consider it and understand, you know, hey, what, what's really going on with an organization that's really very closely tied to what we do in cannabis, you know, marijuana and hemp, uh, that would be important mm-hmm. for us to, to, to know what that relationship is like and whether we want to fight to keep it or not. Like, I think it's just at least important for us to consider where, where do we want this to be. Um, so I appreciate you coming on today and bringing up these these topics. Um, I, I, I'm sweating profusely because it was just so uncomfortable, like in a good way, um, you know, <laughs> so, um, but um, I guess if somebody wants to reach out to you, is there, what, what's your preferred method of folks um, reaching you? Yeah, so I am, it's pretty easy to find me on Harris Perkins' website. Um, again, my name is Daniel Ford. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, my, my handle is at dshort90. I've got two T's in my last name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I encourage people to reach out and, you know, I encourage people to challenge me on, on anything. I mean, you know, I'm constantly learning in this space and I, you know, I mean, I, I totally, well, if, if someone wants to take the time to, you know, reach out, I'm, I, I really appreciate that even if it's critical. Um, yeah, most especially if it's critical. So. I am, you know, in, in no way sort of a, I'm, I'm a work in progress myself on all of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I welcome people to come in and, you know, this does make, this is an uncomfortable conversation. And, um, but I'm, I'm glad that you invited me on to, to have it here. And, you know, I, I think that there's, uh, I'm happy to continue this conversation with your, your listeners or, anyone who wants to reach out, I, I try to make myself easy to be easily accessible. And, you know, and I write, we, we write a lot on the blog too. And I think that um, there's a lot of issues that some of them are, you know, it, it's not everything that we write about is kind of focused on, on, you know, this advocacy and drug policy, but um, you know, we, you can challenge me too about, uh, you know, something I write about hemp that has nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess wrote something about Wyoming's hemp, uh, program. So, you know, if, if this isn't up your alley, you can also reach out and, and talk to me about that. So, okay, cool. Great. Well, I'll, I'll link to that as well. Um, so great. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there, Daniel, then hopefully we can connect again, possibly talk about, uh, some other topics within cannabis in the near future. And, uh, again, I'll link to, uh, to your blog and, uh, how people can connect with you. I'll probably, what I might do is, uh, Put up something on LinkedIn, you know, uh, at mention you there, and if people want to have a conversation there or, or reach out to you directly, that would be another option for yeah. them to just discuss this and see what people think. I had a couple, of, I think yesterday, yesterday or a couple of days ago, I had a couple of uh, LinkedIn now has different uh, reaction emojis, and there was the uh, like hand on the chin, sort of like, hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I saw that too. I think that was uh, someone from Hemp Industry Daily, oh, which is yeah. Absolutely amazing publication too. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Well, hopefully this will spark some conversations. um, Very important nowadays. So um, thank you for, especially for getting up super early, uh, for putting these thoughts out there and uh, look forward to connecting again soon, Daniel. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me and uh, I really enjoyed it. So you have a good day. Thanks. 
Hey guys, and before you go, this is Jason from Spectrum Labs. Please be sure to visit us on the web at thespectrumlabs.com for any show notes and links discussed in the podcast. Also, remember to click the subscribe button wherever you may be listening from so you get notified when our next episode comes out. And tune in next show and have a fantastic day. Thank you.